Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. It was on this site 100 years ago that the worst terrorist attack in American history up until that point was carried out. At 12.01 p.m. on September 16, 1920, a bomb delivered via dynamites and horse-drawn carriage at Wall and Broad Street in Lower Manhattan killed 38 people and seriously injured 143 more. Within a minute of the explosion, which occurred just outside the offices of famed financier J.P. Morgan, trading on the New York Stock Exchange was suspended to prevent a further panic. The carnage was unlike anything America's largest city had ever seen and was splashed across headlines for days. As those who survived were treated, the investigation began with an immediate focus on several radical leftist political groups. Even before the Wall Street explosion, there had been nationwide raids on communist headquarters, a result of the general belief that Bolsheviks were plotting to overthrow the government. Anger over U.S. capitalism and wealth inequality had been growing for decades. The anarchists from Italy in particular became the primary suspects. In part, it was believed over their frustration about the imprisonment of Sacco and Vanzetti, two men who'd been erroneously convicted of murdering a guard and paymaster while they were carrying out an armed robbery near Boston the year before. At first, investigators were puzzled and considered it not an act of terrorism, since no Wall Street businessmen were killed. Instead, street workers, vendors, and clerks, many on their way to lunch. It was noted that the statue of George Washington, just across the street, escaped unscathed. So did J.P. Morgan, who was vacationing in Scotland at the time. Eventually, attention shifted back to disgruntled communists and anarchists, with the main focus on Mario Buda, a longtime activist and former associate of Sacco and Vanzetti. He left the country not long after, and in the end, no one was ever formally convicted of this heinous crime. Today, the only evidence that remains from that tragic event are from these shrapnel marks on the facade of J.P. Morgan's old building. There was a desire to reopen Wall Street as quickly as possible, so some believe that important evidence got washed away after. But think about that. We just had the story about 9-11, about and the men behind it have not been prosecuted yet. And this crime, 100 years ago, was never solved. Yeah. Great, great piece of history. Yeah, really fascinating. Something people yeah. forget about. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Jeff. Hello, and welcome to episode 155 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. I'm changing things up this week. We're not going to be talking about a murder. We're going to be talking about a mass murder. From 1920, that is. And that would be the Wall Street bombing that claimed more than 30 lives. Who was to blame? And you may be wondering, how could this happen in a busy New York City? Well, clearly... That didn't change 9-11, nor did it change the bombing at the original World Trade Center back in the 90s. But, anyway, there are a multitude of takes on this case, and one of them is the FBI's version. And according to the FBI.gov, this is on their website, and I'm going to read verbatim here because it's just a short summary, but... They write it as, The lunch rush was just beginning as a nondescript man driving a cart pressed an old horse forward on a mid-September day in 1920. See, September. He stopped the animal and its heavy load in front of the U.S.S.A. office. 
across from the J.P. Morgan building in the heart of Wall Street. The driver got down and quickly disappeared into the crowd. Within minutes, the cart exploded into a hail of metal fragments, immediately killing more than 30 people and injuring some 300. The carnage was horrific, and the death toll kept rising as the day wore on and more victims succumbed. Who was responsible? In the beginning, it wasn't obvious that the explosion was an intentional act of terrorism. Crews cleaned up the damage overnight, including physical evidence that, of course, today would be helpful in identifying the actual assailant. By the next morning, Wall Street was back in business. Broken windows draped in canvases, workers in bandages, but functioning nonetheless. Conspiracy theories abounded but the New York police and fire departments, the Bureau of Investigation, and the U.S. Secret Service were on the case. Each pursued different leads. The Bureau interviewed hundreds of people who had been around the area before, during, and after the attack, but developed little information of value. The few recollections of the driver and wagon were vague and virtually useless. The NYPD was able to reconstruct the bomb and its fuse mechanism, but there was much debate about the nature of the explosive, and all of the potential components were commonly available. The most promising lead had actually come prior to the explosion, when a letter carrier had found four crudely spelled and printed flyers in the area from a group calling itself, quote, the American Anarchist Fighters, that demanded the release of political prisoners. The letters, discovered later, seemed similar to ones fomented that had been used similarly to the ones used by the Italian anarchists. And the Bureau worked diligently investigating up and down the East Coast to trace the printing of these flyers without any success. Now, there were previous bomb attacks in the earlier decade, and the Bureau initially suspected followers of the Italian anarchist Luigi Gallinani, totally butchered that, I'm sorry. But the case couldn't be proved, and the anarchists actually fled the country. Over the next three years, hot leads turned cold, and promising trails turned into dead ends. In the end, the bombers were never identified. The best evidence and analysis since that fateful day of September 16, 1920, suggests that the Bureau's initial thought was correct, that a small group of Italian anarchists were to blame. But again, the mystery remains and it was a young FBI at the time, and it was very... They were struggling to really get a grip on what had actually happened. And so, later you would have the Associated Press stating that after one week of investigation of the explosion that spread death and terror in Wall Street, officials today still groped for anything that might lead to a solution. Literally, scores of dues, stories, and conjectures have been sifted by operatives of the Department of Justice and local authorities without result. So again, you have the New York Police Department, you have all these different agencies trying to figure out what's going on with this bombing, yet they're not able to put two and two together. And you see that come up literally 81 years later on September 11, 2001, when you had the FBI tracking certain people, you had the CIA tracking certain people, and then you had the NSA, and nobody was communicating with one another. And guess what happened? Well, one of the worst, if not the worst thing ever, I mean, it's definitely 
top two, three. And again, it could have been prevented if there was just a form of communication. Now, History.com looked back at the bombings in 2015 in a 95-year retrospective, and they wrote, In Lower Manhattan's financial district, it was the center of American capitalism in the 1920s. Then the southeast corner of Wall and Broad Streets was its most important junction. It was dominated by the headquarters of J.P. Morgan & Company, a financial leviathan that had come out of World War I as the most influential banking institution on the globe. Across the street stood the U.S. sub-treasury and the S.A. office. The bustling New York Stock Exchange was located just down the road. Rain was in the forecast for that September 16th day in 1920, but as the bells of nearby Trinity Church rang in the noonday hour, quote, the corner was its usual hive of activity. Bank clerks and stockbrokers swarmed around the building fronts, and the streets were clogged with automobiles and messenger boys. Few in the lunchtime crowd paid any notice to the battered horse-drawn wagon parked in front of the essay office, nor the driver that had anxiously dropped the reins and hurried off down the street. The final ring of the church bells was still hanging in the air at 12.01 when the 100 pounds of dynamite concealed in the wagon detonated with an ear-splitting roar. Quote, That was the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life, J.P. Morgan employee Andrew Dunn later remembered. Quote, It was enough to knock you out by itself. Unquote. The blast derailed a streetcar a block over and sent debris soaring as high as the 34th floor of the nearby equity building equitable building. Pieces of the wagon's ill-fated horse landed hundreds of yards away, while stockbroker Joseph P. Kennedy, father of future President John F. Kennedy, was lifted clear off his feet by the concussion, as were many others. Again, this is straight from history.com. Now, those closer to the wagon were consumed in pillars of flame or cut to pieces by hundreds of pounds of metal fragments, most likely iron sash weights, that had been cruelly piled on top of the bomb to act as shrapnel. Quote, I saw the explosion, a column of smoke shoot up in the air, and then saw people dropping all around me, some of them with their clothing afire, a witness later told the New York Sun. Next came a rain of glass from shattered windows, which drenched the streets and nearby offices. The inside of the Morgan building was raked by debris. One piece crushed the skull of 24-year-old clerk William Joyce as he sat at his desk. To the many World War I veterans on hand, the devastation at Ground Zero was eerily reminiscent of a battlefield. Wall Street was rendered a no-man's land of spattered blood, broken glass, charred bodies. The air was thick with smoke and soot and severed limbs littered the ground. Almost all in front of the steps leading up to the Morgan Bank were mutilated, and it was uh, a, basically a disgusting sight. Everybody remembers the pictures of 9-11 and the people running for their lives as the towers collapsed, just flying through a, a thick cloud of smoke and just being in the daze. I can only imagine what it would have been like in 1920 when they had absolutely no ability to communicate with each other other than through telegraphs and I guess, I mean telephones were around but it still wasn't like it is today and uh, this would have been an awful awful scene especially without the modern medicine that we practice today I mean I'm sure it was better in 1920 than it was in 1820 but damn 
lots of people probably could have survived that and ended up dying because they just didn't have the medicine to treat these people or the expertise even. So as this bomb was going off, people were saying, quote, other bodies, most of them silent and death, lay nearby. As I glazed horror-stricken at the sight, one of those forms, half-naked and seared with burns, started to rise. It struggled, then toppled and fell lifeless into the gutter. Just reading accounts like that, it's absolutely shocking to think that this case hasn't been highlighted more. I would assume that it has to do with the fact that uh, 9-11 happened, the World Trade Center bombing happened, but it does make for an, an intriguing story, but we definitely don't want to be promoting any copycat type of things, and especially with everything that's going on in this day and age, I'd say it's probably better left, you know, probably in the back burner of things. Maybe we don't keep this one out there as public as some other horrible things, but it is important to note that there was literally nobody there to hold anybody accountable. Now, trading at the stock exchange did ground to a halt, and some 2,000 New York City policemen and Red Cross nurses did converge on Wall Street to help come through the wreckage. And again, as I said, the initial explosion killed 30 and men and women, and another eight would later die from their wounds. Now, again, hundreds of people were injured, and of course they were, because they had shrapnel flying through crowds of people, and this is just an absolute horror and disaster waiting to happen if you just set off a bomb in, in a crowd. That is what's going to happen. Now, of course, the attack would remain the deadliest terrorist incident on U.S. soil until the Oklahoma City bombing 75 years later. Yet, investigators struggled to explain who had carried it out or why. The obvious target was the Morgan Bank, which some critics bl claimed had profited off the horrors of World War I, but most of the wagon's bomb victims were lowly stenographers and clerks, not wealthy businessmen. J.P. Morgan Jr. himself had been thousands of miles away in Europe when the dynamite went off. Quote, there was no objective except general terrorism, wrote St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The bomb was not directed against any particular person or property. It was directed against a public, anyone who happened to be near or any property in the neighborhood. With the first Red Scare still in full swing, most of the finger-pointing soon centered on an anti-capitalist, communist, and anarchist group. Now, that's the group that we talked about before. And they had been blamed for dozens, yes, dozens of other bombings dating back to the 19th centuries. Now, again, like I mentioned earlier, suspicions grew on September 17th when postal workers found a stack of flyers that had been dropped off in the financial district mailboxes just minutes before the blast, quote, remember, they read, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you, American anarchist fighters, unquote. The letters bore a similar resemblance to those that were circulated after a terror campaign in June 1919 when bombs were set off in a couple different cities in the U.S., now, police had since credited that plot to the, I'm going to try this again, Galenists. Galeni, 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 
I don't even know. Anyway, a gang of anti-government Italian anarchists led by a rousing orator and explosives guru named Luigi. And again, I'm not going to try the name because I just keep screwing it up. And again, he was deported the previous year, but many aspects of the Wall Street bomb, particularly the use of iron weights as shrapnel, had matched the infernal machines that he and his followers had crafted in the past. Now, unfortunately for the authorities, the mysterious flyers were the closest anyone ever came to claiming responsibility for the attack. Police and agents from the Bureau of Investigation, which was later the FBI, spent over three years trying to crack the case and identify the wagon's driver. But the trail went cold, as did dozens of others involving everyone from trade unionists to the American Communist Party and even Vladimir Lenin himself. One of the stranger dead ends concerned Edward Fisher, a mentally unstable tennis champion who had warned people to stay away from Wall Street in the days preceding the attack. Once investigators learned that Fisher had issued several previous Wall Street warnings, each one was supposedly received, quote, through God and the air, they dropped him as a suspect and committed him to a psychiatric ward, which you could do in 1920. You can't do that in 2020. It's just the way it goes, or 2022, whatever year it is now. Now, Michael Kaplan of the New York Post, he did an excellent piece on the 100-year anniversary of this tragic event. And I want to quote directly from his extensive piece here. And he talks about a little bit more into detail about the day. And he talks about the fact that um, initially investigators thought the explosion would have been an accident because after all, quote-unquote, downtown resembled a construction zone. Think about that for a second. The downtown resembled a construction zone. I bet if you asked a New Yorker if things have changed, they'd probably say not too much. But what has changed is that dynamite isn't routinely used anymore in the building sites. Back in 1920, though, horse pulled carts filled with explosives all over the city. What a great time. And I'm sure they gave that job to some kid because... Well, child labor laws, and, you know, it's a kid back in the early 1900s, just the way it was. Not trying to say one thing's right and one thing's wrong, but, uh, you know, how this goes. These businessmen, they knew what they were doing. So, scattered through the streets, mixed in with the explosion, the explosions, uh, remnants, you know, again, there was 500 pounds of metal window sash weights. Now, Originally, there was 100 pounds, then they go 500 pounds. Uh, you know, find a happy medium in there and we'll just settle on it. But the fact was, there was enough of this window sash weight in there to create shrapnel that would eventually kill 38 people. And the way shrapnel works, I mean, everybody who's seen any war movie understands a grenade is shrapnel. It's a piece of metal, you know, it blows up. Yes, that's terrible, but it's the shrapnel that will cause, you know, loss of limbs, loss of life, um, a variety of, of very debilitating injuries. So the fact that there were 300 people injured, those people were probably permanently injured for 
for the wounds that they had suffered because of the fact that shrapnel it was just it has no it's not like a clean cut it's not like a knife cut it's just it's a brutal wound and really it's it's terrible so anyway back to the story and again like i mentioned before most people believe that this bombing was directed towards jp morgan now that's because jp morgan stood for capitalism in america i'm an american vigilante i have a question for you what would you do if someone you cared about was abducted taken from you would you call me would you care about how I got them back download American Vigilante now let's hear from this week's sponsor betterhelp.com well, we made it through 2021, and as you can see, 2022 really isn't much better. But if there is something holding you back, there is now an easy way to get help, and that's BetterHelp.com. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace with BetterHelp Online Counseling. You can connect with an online professional counselor in a private and safe environment. And you know what? It's really convenient because it has to be in this fluid world. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions, and then you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp is really there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. My favorite thing is, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone, so really you're never out of touch. So if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, like I sometimes do, or other issues such as anger, stress, LGBT issues, self-esteem, whatever it may be, they do have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. Again, it's really a great option. It's affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and you'll get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All right, we are back. All I can say is bombings were all the rage, I guess, in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, in the article of the New York Post, quote, bombers were on a rampage in the United States. Violent groups of anarchists, socialists, and communists were thought to be at the core of a movement to unsettle capitalist and government institutions. It was a time of social upheaval with 25% of workers on strike in 1919 in search of higher pay and better working conditions. Wow, fast forward 100 years and, well, that sounds very damn similar to... The recent protests around minimum wage and what is considered a living wage. Because, sorry to stand on a soapbox real quick, but the government's minimum wage is crap. And if you think it is not, then please reassess what your life expenses cost. 
Because if you think you can live on the $8 and whatever it is an hour as a federal minimum wage, try again. It doesn't work. It's just straight poverty. And anyway, off the soapbox, but think about that for a second. So the most recent explosion, you know, bombs had been sent through the mail before to people like Morgan himself, John Rockefeller, and, you know, of course, Woodrow Wilson. I mean, Wilson, terrible guy. Some of those elites were saved by the penny-pinching of radicals. Lacking sufficient postage, the packages would never reach their targets. That's pretty funny because, eh, you know, a couple people in there, Woodrow Wilson, I don't know, kind of a racist. In 1919, a coordinated attack had bombs going off in seven cities, including Washington, D.C., where an explosive was supposed to land on the porch of U.S. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. But said Gage, it was set to a timer and went off prematurely. The guy carrying the bomb, an Italian anarchist, got killed. Pieces of his body were found all over Palmer's neighborhood. I hate to laugh, but that's pretty freaking funny. Awful as past incidents have been, the Wall Street event was different. Quote, most of the bombings were not designed to cause mass casualty or to hurt a lot of innocent people, said Gage. In this case, though, quote, most of those were, who were killed or injured were not the wealthy, unquote. Their remains were quickly disposed of. Quote, forensics were not well developed at the time. Workers were washed down the streets, cleared evidence, or workers walked, that would have been bad if they just washed them down the street. But workers washed down the streets, they cleared evidence, they dumped it in the, they, they dumped it because, that's what you did back then. You didn't have landfills. And then there was a sense that the market needed to reopen as soon as possible. So it was just that one day that they closed the markets. And coincidentally, the day, September 17th, on which the exchanges opened after 9-11. Coincidence. I don't know. It's just weird. But, quote, workers came back. They came in limping. They had arms and slings and bandages around their heads. Wall Street had to show that it was functioning. As the financiers regained their footing, the NYPD, the FBI, and private detective firms such as Pinkerton and the William J. Burns International Detective Agency began investigations. So Pinkerton, everybody knows Pinkerton, I think, but... They're a private security guard detective agency, and they were founded back in the 1850s by Scotsman Alan Pinkerton. Now, according to his bio, Pinkerton became famous because he claimed to have foiled a plot to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. Of course, his agents would then go on to work for security during the Civil War. Then Pinkerton agents performed services ranging from guarding military contracting work to breaking up union strikes. I mean, great guys. It was the largest private law enforcement organization in the world when it was at the height of its power. Now, it was during the strikes of the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, where reporter business insider Katie Canellis had stated <laughs> that Pinkerton agencies try to infiltrate union, unions, supply guards, they keep strikers and suspected unionists out of factories and recruit goon squads to intimidate workers. One such confrontation was the Homestead Strike of 1892, in which Pinkerton agents were called in to reinforce, reinforce the strike-breaking measures of industrialist Henry Clay Frick. And if you know anything about him, another not-so-great guy, acting on behalf of Andrew Carnegie. 
eh, not so great guy either. The ensuing battle between Pinkerton agents and striking workers led to the deaths of three Pinkerton agents and nine steel workers. So basically, these guys were basically, they were basically just a bunch of goons that would go around and fight people and say, we're going to intimidate you. You can't start a union. Amazon apparently had used Pinkerton in their latest uh, union skirmish. I mean, think about that for a second. Amazon, a billion dollar company, is hiring a private detective agency to infiltrate union meetings that Amazon employees are trying to hold. It's just, it's sick. Jeff, Mr. Bezos, come on, buddy. Your wife is making you look like a fool. You gave her half of your wealth when you were only worth $120 billion, but look how much she has done. Look how much she has given. And look how much you haven't. And look how rich you have been since this pandemic started. Time to share some of the wealth, Jeff. And that's not socialism talking. That's just being a good person. And it's also called charity. When you donate pretty much similar amounts to what middle-aged or middle-class workers, I'm sorry, middle-class workers donate, that's pretty much not cool, dude. So, Jeff, again, get off your rich man horse. You're not going to catch musk. So, deal with it. Start being more charitable. Treat your employees better. And speaking of that, that reminds me of being just in Colorado where another giant company, Vail Resorts, is ruining the ski industry by not paying their employees and buying every ski resort across the United States, then limiting hours because they're not willing to pay their workers. So really, since 19... Since forever, really, let's be honest, the guys with the money, they don't want to give it up. And sometimes they have to wake up in order to realize that, hey... In order to make all this money, I need these employees. I can't continue to treat them like shit, or everything will go to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it is not unbelievable to think that some of these companies could just die because their workers are treated so, so poorly. I mean, you read the horror stories of Amazon. I mean, my lord, yes, please do something there. Like, People need control. You don't necessarily need a union, but you need to have a strong, really strong group of employees. Costco is a great example. Just standing on my little soapbox for a minute there. I apologize. But was there a suspect in this case? Well, there was, and that was Edward Fisher. Now, he was an investment guy and... He was a former employee of a well-regarded brokerage firm. And shortly before the bombing, he actually had warned, get out of Wall Street as soon as the gong strikes 3 o'clock Wednesday the 15th. Good luck. Now, Fisher, whom an ex-employer described as the victim of a, quote, nervous breakdown, which left him mentally deranged, was actually in Toronto at the time of the bombing. Authorities briefly held and questioned Fisher before cutting him loose and turning into turning to a powerful tool created years earlier by J. Edgar 
Hoover. Quote, he made an early surveillance system by creating a database of all the radicals in America, said Susan Bellows, director of the American Experience documentary, The Bombing of Wall Street, as she told The Post. Quote, it was the first example of peacetime surveillance. Now, Kaplan goes on to write, known anarchists and communists were uncovered and questioned with the help of Hoover's system. Additionally, hundreds of tips rolled in and there were loads of eyewitnesses, but their recollections were so contradictory that they couldn't even agree on the color of the bomb's smoke. Quoted lead theory was the bombs were set by a prominent Italian anarchist, but investigators were unable to build that case, said Bellows. Hoover thought the bombing was directed by forces in Russia, but that didn't go anywhere either. And so no arrests were made. Now, it's widely speculated, as we've talked about, that an Italian anarchist was involved. But Mario Buda is the name that they attached to the person who may have committed the actual incident. And Buda was thought to be involved in the 1919 bombings. But he was actually never brought into question because he fled to Italy after the Wall Street bombing. So you have some circumstantial evidence there, and that's very much a possibility. Now, again, as the investigation went on, basically there were no leads. <laughs> and uh, around 1925, a Wall Street Journal reporter visited the site on the explosion's anniversary, and basically financial district workers barely recalled a thing. And there's absolutely nothing... Kaplan writes that commemorates the site of the Wall Street bombing today. Although there are po powerful remnants, grape-sized, grapefruit-sized pox in the limestone interior exterior of the building that once symbolized capitalism in America, quote, it's easy to imagine that terrorist violence only began in the late 20th century. But this is a reminder that it was always and always has been in the system and most likely always will be. So again, here we have a situation where the bombing goes unsolved. I mean, we really don't know what's going on. Now, something does happen a couple years later where there's a story about a bomb maker. And there, I told you about the William Burns Detective Agency. Now, William James Burns, this is from the Los Angeles Times. And William James Burns, chief of the Bureau of Investigation of the Department of Justice, late today questioned Herbert Wilson, convicted murderer and jailbreaker, regarding Wilson's statement that he had made the bomb which caused the Wall Street explosion in 1920. Burns came in from Florida to question Wilson. Wilson tells a straightforward and logical story, Burns said, while it's true that the Department of Justice has closed the investigation on the Wall Street bombing, having learned that these parties responsible for it are now in Russia, Wilson's story could well fit in with the facts as we already know them. We will start immediately checking up the details as he gives them to us. Our investigation proves Wilson's state if our investigation proves Wilson's statements to be true, and I know of no reason why it should not, we will know the source of the explosive that went into the bomb. Byrne declined to disclose any of the information Wilson gave him, of course. Now, before going into that conference, conference, which lasted more than an hour, Burns expressed the opinion that Wilson was, quote, talking for his own benefit after the interview and believed Wilson was sincere and was not making the statement to gain favors. Wilson told Sheriff William Traeger about two weeks prior 
that he had furnished the explosive and manufactured the bomb which waxed, was used in the Wall Street bombing. The bomb, he declared, was made at his home in August 1920 and was sold for the purpose, he thought, to be used as like a safe blower, basically. So Wilson and his partner Herbert Cox were arrested for robbing a mail truck. While awaiting trial, they attempted a jailbreak, and Cox was shot and killed while he and Wilson were alone. Wilson was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison, imprisonment. He escaped from the county jail October, 27, October 17, 1923, but was recaptured two days later. So, again, you have another detective agency looking into this case, going, all right, it's probably this guy, but it's there's no evidence. So what do we do? Well, they didn't do anything. Nothing. The last official inquiry into the Wall Street attack took place in 1944, and that was when the FBI reopened the decade, decades-old case and concluded the explosion was likely the work of, of course, the Italian anarchists or terrorists. Now, like I've talked about possible suspects, Buddha, Galliani. Buddha was an associate of the famed anarchists Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, and he may have engineered the Wall Street attack as a revenge for their September 11th, 1920 indictment for murder in a robbery gone wrong. The similarities between these attacks and 9-11 are absolutely disturbing. But the bottom line is the scars are still visible in the buildings today. There's really nothing to symbolize what happened on that day on September 16, 1920. We know 38 people lost their lives and... Those 38 people, again, were not the wealthy people who worked on Wall Street. Those were generally the lower class people, street workers and shop workers. And if there's if this was an attempt to intimidate the banking world, well, apparently they did not do their job because <laughs> clearly it did not go over well. And... Um, Nobody took responsibility. That's another big question mark. So you create this bomb. Unless you were the one that died in the explosion, one of the 38 people, which is very possible because nobody really talks about that. Like, There's a possibility that this would have been a one-man job and he rolled his little card in there and he blew himself up by accident. Or he just did a suicide bombing. I mean, we see those every day on the news in foreign countries. Let's just hope that doesn't become a thing here and again this is just another example of a hundred years separating 80 years actually between 9-11 and the bombing of 1920 81 years and major similarities and then you see the major similarities between what the Pinkertons did back then and what they're doing now with Amazon and unions and it just sounds like a lot of disgruntled workers and disgruntled um People for that that is fair. I mean, I don't I don't see it as a. I mean, I see the bombing as a 
crime, obviously. This is a terrible thing to do. You don't go around blowing people up, but I understand their ang- anger and their, you know, what they were going through as far as being on the low end of the totem pole. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of left without much thought on who this could have been because we'll just go with what the FBI says and say that it's probably one of the people from the Italian side of things, but, you know, let's be honest, nobody's ever really going to know until... (sighs) Nobody's going to ever know. Let's just be honest about it. It's one of those things. I hate to say it, but, you know, it happens. So on that note... That will do it for this week's episode of Who Killed. I hope you enjoyed the little history lesson. I enjoyed researching this bombing. It's really, really interesting. If you want to learn more, I suggest check out the history.com article. I'll provide sources in the show notes. So thank you guys so much for listening. As I've said before, for the second year in a row, I will be representing... Who Killed on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas. It's definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fan. I will be there the 29th of April through May 1st. Now, if you want to save on your ticket, you can do so by using my promo code. And let me pull that up real quick here. Um, That promo code would be Who Killed. And that is if you would like to save 10% on your badges. So type in who killed when you're checking out on CrimeCon. And I hope to see you there. Now, if you do enjoy this podcast as well as the other shows, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That's slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. Every contribution does help keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. Now, I do not expect any new information to come from this particular episode. But if you do have information about any of the other episodes that I've covered, such as Amy Mahalovic or Jeanette Roberson... Please contact your local FBI agents or your local crime stoppers. As you guys know, I drop new episodes every Friday. And if you want to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time, be healthy and stay safe. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult 
struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. 